0: This is a Lodestar Podcast, created by MK and & Associates, and your host, Mike King. Our sponsor is Project 44, operator of the world's most trusted end-to-end visibility platform.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Mike King, and welcome to this inaugural episode the Lodestar's Big Interview Podcast. Today, I'm talking to AP Mollermersk's Morten Bo christensen who over the last decade has been tasked with finding solutions to some of the critical challenges facing both his company and our industry. In his previous position as head of strategy, he worked closely with CEO Soren Skou as Maersk ditched its energy business and started a bold transformation. This was designed to turn big blue, as it's sometimes known, from being a provider of commoditized port-to-port services into a fully-fledged container logistics integrator, a strategy which has not been without controversy as we'll discuss later. If that wasn't challenging enough, he's now stepped up again to take on arguably an even greater undertaking. As head of decarbonisation at AP Mollermersk, his task is multifaceted. While many shipping lines need to understand decarbonisation in relation primarily to vessel design, new fuels and operations, Maersk now needs to apply its decarbonisation strategy to its extended global supply chain as it spends recent windfalls on everything from more warehouses to more air freight capacity. It's a daunting brief for any individual. So let me warmly welcome shipping's renaissance man, Morten Bo Christensen. How are you, sir?
0: Thank you very much, uh, I'm really good, thank you.
1: Uh, Morton. it strikes me that your success in helping guide Maersk's transformation has made your position as head of decarbonisation far more challenging, a case of you've made your bed now lie in it perhaps. So let's look at your time as head of strategy first and then come back to how Maersk plans to decarbonise shipping and supply chains. Just rewinding to 2016, AP Mollermers back then was essentially operating in two markets with very little synergy, which we've discussed in the past. So this was container shipping and maritime support services of the oil and gas sector. The latter, of course, you will know more than anyone has not been a very carbon-friendly business. Now, I might say you weren't really succeeding in either. Oil prices, ocean freight rates were a bit bearish, profits and markets capitalization in, in retreat. So your challenge back then was to keep the company relevant and profitable by choosing one of those businesses essentially and divesting the rest and moving away from a conglomerate model so just briefly so our listeners have some context how did you do it
0: yeah definitely we were back then a uh, conglomerate and uh, AP monomer has been that for for many many years a very uh, rather sprawling conglomerate at times actually and uh, served the company very well for many many years but but clearly uh, clearly had run its course And indeed, uh, the task that we had from our board and and from the the Mono family that still controls uh, the majority of of the company was really that our company has existed for more than 100 years. Your task is uh, to make sure that it is still relevant uh, 100 years from now. And that's actually a somewhat unusual task to get as both for Saran, I think as a CEO, but certainly also for all the rest of us who were helping him, right? Because normally you look, um, it's not a 100-year horizon you look at, but we really did that. And you know, when you put on that lens, um, although actually, sort of from a short-term perspective, profit pools were there, were bigger in upstream oil and gas. But for us, it it was actually quite clear that on a hundred-year horizon, then they, we we have a fundamental belief that people will still be trading with each other a hundred years from now. But it was also quite obvious for us that a hundred years from then, that being in upstream oil and gas was not a relevant place to be. And and then I think chopping that up with the DNA of our company. We have done many, many things, uh, but the red thread have always been uh, to enable global trade and global supply chains. So, I think it would have been very difficult for our board and our owners to see us not not be. That's really what we do, that 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 runs in our veins. So that was, in a way, an easy decision, but of course it was not because this was half of the company that we had to um, flip around. And then the rest of it, we had to turn 90 degrees. So um, I, I think daunting time, and I, I think that describes it quite well.
1: So after that, we saw a, a di- divestment of large chunks of that conglomerate, and now with this, there's been this big refocus. Seven years on into this transformation strategy, I was talking to someone recently who knows Maersk very well, and his view is that essentially you've now become a, a contract logistics company, albeit one with ships, ports, and containers rather than warehouses, trucks, and pallets. Firstly, do you agree with that description? Uh, And secondly, is this where you see long-term profit? Is that the company view in building up this supply chain footprint and finding
0: new profit centers within it? You know, I I would actually rather not define our company by any product or service. What we strive to become is a global integrator for our customers that we take out complexity and help them run their global supply chains in a simple and sustainable way. That's really how I would prefer to, to characterize our company. And I, I do believe that if you serve your customers well, in the long run, that is a profitable business model. So, uh, so I really, you know, I, I think, and it was actually quite clear to us back in, in, in 2016, that the global integrator, it was not like we could copy someone else because the model uh, didn't exist, to be honest. There were other models out there, but this was something new. And that is also why I think it was. We were off to a bit of a rough start, right? And the cyber attack didn't help and, you know, China, U.S. uh, trade tensions and so on and now a pandemic. But I I think the premise was always, if you could delight your customers in what you do and solve important problems for your customers, that will turn out to be profitable business long-term and make you relevant.
1: When you mentioned about there being other models out there, does that mean outside of logistics industry or are you talking about integrators like UPS, FedEx, DHL? Is that more where you were looking for inspiration?
0: Yeah, I think clearly uh, in the early days, we were actually quite inspired by the parcel market, right? Where where you actually had integrators, right? Who basically just solved your problem. And then they decided which assets to control, which not, and how to run it, right? And we often actually use the example of, you know, when you ship a parcel to your auntie uh, from, uh, you know, Düsseldorf to Atlanta, it's not like you care which airline it goes on or which airport it gets transshipped in, right? but at least back in those days, when you shipped a container from Shanghai to Dusseldorf, you certainly did care about which container liner and where it should get transshipped and so on. So so that was, I think, a source of inspiration. Then, of course, when you dive in and so on, you realize that there's so much difference, not least the time horizon and the complexity in, in container compared but, you know, but it was clearly a, an inspiration. This hassle-free, you just solve your customer's problem, right, in a reliable manner. That clearly was a big source of inspiration for us.
1: Now, before we move on to your new role, there has been some controversy in all of this, which will be of interest to Lodestar listeners. Was it always the plan back when this transformation process started to move away from taking bookings uh, on on your container vessels from smaller forwarders, or maybe leaving them with digital spot pricing only and focusing more on those big top 100 or the largest shippers, which seems to have been the policy recently or has all of this just been a result of, you know, the extraordinary nature of the, the shipping market at the moment, these past two years? Or maybe Maersk sees competing with the forwarders as part of that DNA you mentioned earlier. This, is this a zero sum
0: game? Well, I, I know, I think in relating to the to the freight forwarders, first of all, they are very important customers of ours, big or small. And for the cargo owners, that's one very proposition in the market, right? And many customers like that for what that gives them. And and that's great. We present a different value proposition that some customers prefer. And I think, you know, the more options that there are in the market, the customers will decide which they like the better, right? And we are both in the market today and, and doing well. So I, I think both models are, are serving uh, some customers uh, to their satisfaction. I would, I would guess since they, said they're there. But I think from uh, our objective, different customers have this different niche. What we did was we, we basically um, tried to tailor our offerings to the different customer segments and how we can best serve them. And that's why we have different uh, offerings to different segments. And I think that goes for, for most companies that you cannot, I think, honestly, if you look back and this is really not a, to point to anything or anything, but some of the old, uh, the really old school shipping model was like one size fits all right. This is what you have. And it doesn't really matter what your needs are, but you know, they take a leave a truly commoditized product. And that's really, that's what we are trying to solve, right? So that the customers can address the needs or that we can address the relevant customer needs within each segment.
1: So, but there's no responsibility from May's point of view in in sort of ha- feeling that you need to provide a service to a smaller forwarder, because that's not your business. It's your business is, is your business.
0: We have a lot of small forwarders as customers and we do everything we can to serve them well. They are very important customers of ours and we do the best we can. And we live in general, that digital solutions is a big lever in this, right? Because again, if you go five, six years back. Shipping was extremely analog business. And I think we have all seen that from anything we do in our private life that, that digital technology is just a huge enabler of the customer experience and the quality of the product. And that's why we are trying to bring that to the market, both to the small forwarders, but, but also to our big and larger customers. And,
1: and I presume that becomes part of your strategy in your new role, which you took on over a year ago, and that's leading mesk's decarbonization push, which obviously is no easy task, given that Maers tends to like to spearhead the industry on this. And and I've had a number of shipping companies argue that there's a competitive disadvantage in being a first mover. So firstly, Morton, could you explain the remit of your position, your job role, and how Maers' transformation from shipping-focused to
0: logistics-focused has has changed the nature of that task? Okay, let me just start with that. You know, the ESG agenda covers many, many aspects, and all of which are very important to us. When we look at the different problems to be solved and to be addressed for us, one task kind of uh, dwarfs the others, which is the fact that our company emits actually more CO2 than the country we are headquartered in. And it is a small country we are headquartered in, but still. So that is kind of a challenge that is of a different magnitude than the rest of the the ESG uh, focus that we have. So that's why we have decided to carve it out. And, and it is an area where we have, as you can see, decided to take a very active role in really, really pushing it because we think we can. We have a very high bar on all the other ESG promises as well, but uh, relative to this, the climate agenda, we, we, can, we can do less relative. Right? So this is really why we have decided to carve it out. And I think actually for me, the transition was surprisingly natural. Because again, the whole remedy of the global integrator was to, at the end of the day, make sure that our customers can keep running global supply chains. We think that's good for our customers. We think it's good for their customers. And we actually think it's good for global growth overall. And the first focus on the global integrator was really about simplifying and digitizing so that it was accessible to others and easier to do. But I think what we realized over those five, six years that passed was that actually, Doing it in a sustainable manner was actually also a prerequisite for global supply chains to sustain because the way things are going with the climate, I think we all, I mean, I don't know, we all read the three and a half thousand pages of the IPCC report, but I think most of us get the gist of it. I mean, we are headed for disaster as humanity, right? If we keep going the way we are going and shipping and logistics is part of that problem, it's a big part of the problem, I mean, moving global freight around the world emits more than three and a half billion tons of CO2. It's about 10% of all energy-related emissions, just moving stuff around. That simply cannot go on. And again, if you take the long view of this, we are quite sure that whether it is in 10, 15, or whatever years from now, our customers and their customers simply cannot accept that. So if we do not manage to decarbonize global supply chains, we actually think they might—we might, we, might be, we will become relevant, right? So it became a strategic imperative to not only simplify and digitize, but also to decarbonize our, our offerings to the customers. So that was how it was. I actually thought it was a quite natural extension of the role. And as you said, no, we haven't made it any easier by expanding on the land side because it's difficult enough to decarbonize shipping. But the land side with trucking and barging and warehouses and terminals and so on, it certainly doesn't make it any easier. But again, if you take it from a customer perspective, Yeah, it's great that we can provide them with a product at sea, which is carbon neutral, but they need their stuff from A to B, not from one port to another. So again, if we are to be true to our strategic direction, this is just a strategic imperative for us. This is a Lodestar podcast created by MK & Associates. I'm your host, Mike King. Our sponsor is Project 44. Operator of the world's most trusted end-to-end visibility platform which tracks more than 1 billion shipments annually for over 1,000 of the leading brands, including top companies in manufacturing, automotive, retail, life sciences, food and beverage, and oil, chemical and gas. Using Project 44, shippers and carriers across the globe drive greater predictability, resiliency and sustainability.
1: I'm interested to hear about some of those investments in these technologies and and particular solutions in shipping or in logistics in a second, but essentially you're still a business and and we do face this fundamental climate change threat as a world, but at the end of the day, you need to come up to something that solutions that work for the the AP Moller business as well. So eventually is that if you look at this in the long run, whether it's as a provider of logistics solutions or shipping solutions, to the biggest shippers, is your view that if you can provide them with sustainable decarbonized solutions, then you will actually have a competitive advantage down the road, rather than being forced into this by regulators?
0: To be honest, I do think that to get all the way through for shipping, we do need regulators to step up and regulate this. We basically need that price on carbon, right? I, I think that we've been very clear around that, right? And, and that needs to be done under, a, of course, under the International Maritime Organization. Right? So. If you look out, let's say 10, 15 years, and also looking at the rest of, of shipping, we need that regulation, right? So I just want to make that uh, clear. However, that cannot be a, a, an excuse not to act. And the way we see it is actually that first of all, we actually have an obligation to do this because, I mean, we are part of the problem. We have built, same as any other logistic company, we have built our businesses emitting CO2. Well, same as most companies, actually. So we have an obligation to do it. I think that's number one. And we actually feel that obligation. And then secondly, we have an increasing, and I would say fast increasing number of customers for whom this is really very important. A lot of our customers are setting very ambitious targets for their own companies, including their so-called scope three. So the emissions that other emit on your behalf. And and for many of those, let's take a, a sports shoe manufacturer, for example, right? They do not actually emit a lot of CO2 themselves. They have a lot of CO2. They they basically source the product, the marketing, they sell them, and design them. So, for example, the supply chain is a significant part of their emissions that they need to address. So they are interested in solutions that actually solve the problem. And so we are seeing increasing demand uh, in that. And these customers, they are willing to pay a reasonable premium for this, because these new fuels are, of course, uh, significantly more expensive. And we are seeing a a strong demand on that. And also from our side. We are also willing to pay part of the premium, right? I mean, why, why should we just pass it on? We are, like I said, we are part of the problem. You know, this is a technology game because this is about all of this power tricks and so on. So at some point in time, we will reach parity. At these fuels will become cheaper than oil, right? And then, you know, then there is no problem. But there is a period of time where we need to invest and we are willing to do that and a lot of our customers are as well. I think with the speed that we can ramp this up, we actually think that there will be enough demand. Can we cover every last cent? No, I don't think so, but that's okay. I think the important thing is to get going, get moving, and because the task is daunting. it is. I mean, it, it's not difficult from a technology perspective, to be honest. It's the scaling that is just daunting, right? But that's just all the more reasons to start now. You mentioned the, these more
1: expensive fuels. Are you confident there will be enough alternative fuels available in sufficient volumes? And, and in terms of those fuels, I know you've placed some vessel orders recently. How exactly are you looking at those fuels? Where are you p- placing your green fuel bets, essentially?
0: We have a, a lot of engineers working in this company and they spent many, 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 hours studying this. So the future of fuel mix is relatively complex, right? The one thing we do know is that anything fossil obviously cannot solve the problem. And when we look at the green products, so those with low or very low uh, greenhouse gas emissions, then, then we look at methanol, which is an alcohol that does contain CO2, but can produce by extracting CO2 from the air one way or the other. That is one of the solutions, and that is the most technologically mature solution. It's actually possible to order an engine today. You can build a ship. That's why we actually ordered 13 already. And it's actually proven technology. We simply know it will work. We know it can work. There is a fuel challenge, but let me get back to that. Then, um, as I talk about ammonia as a fuel also, and, and we also believe in that, it's just more uncertain. Because first of all, from a technology perspective, the engines and so on are less developed and they're not proven to go they that they're properly new engines that needs to be developed, but the engine manufacturers are working on that hard and, and they expect to come out with the first one in a couple of years, but then they need to run the main, they need to engineer bigger engines and so on. So, you know, just looking at the pace of this, it'll take a while before we can get some really big ships out sailing on ammonia. Assuming that we can handle the challenges that there are with this fuel, because it's very popular, I think, because it's kind of the perfect issue. It, it's very simple to make it from simply just ambient air, water and renewable energy. But it's a gas, which makes it difficult to handle. And importantly, it's a highly toxic gas. So both in terms of safety on board our vessels, but also in relation and, and you know, if you have sleep in, we typically bunker in large cities. So that's a safety concern as well. And then we have the marine environment, because if you actually have spills of ammonia into the marine environment, it is extremely harmful as opposed to, to methanol, which is an alcohol, which will evaporate and do limited harm. So there are just a lot of uncertainties also on the, so both on the safety, the environmental and the regulatory side, that needs to be solved. We think they will be solved. We certainly hope they will be solved. We just don't know when, and we are really not entirely in control. So the way we look at it is that if we want to do something in this decade for real, for us, there is one option and it is Methanol, and it's a great option. And the last thing I should say about Methanol, why we like that so much. Existing ships can be retrofitted. So you have these 20, 30-year assets costing you hundreds of millions of dollars. You can actually retrofit them at a reasonable cost to run on Methanol. And I think that's just a huge advantage because it means you don't need to talk about stranded assets, right? So that's why we like that technology, but we are not uh, in luck with it. We are not, uh, it's not our sole bit. Uh, it's just... What we can do now and then when new weather technologies present themselves we'll go with that but there's not, not much about the future that we know i do think i know that it will be a complex fuel landscape in the future but hey we can deal with that
1: it's not just about the sorting out ordering the right vessels being able to retrofit existing vessels for these new fuels you're also a big terminal operator what's the plan there i mean we're talking about big infrastructure investments you need to
0: feed these new ships Definitely, the terminals are very important in, in so many ways, but also as uh, as a bunkering location for the new fuels. Actually, you know, methanol, again, it's it's a liquid. It's, it's very simple to transport. You can use a normal bunker box to, to fuel the vessel and so on. So the infrastructure on methanol is actually uh, relatively straightforward. Uh, it's a very different story with ammonia, where it is very, very complex. So sort of at the short medium term, uh, that's probably not our biggest concern. Although, uh, of course, very important. I mean, clearly our biggest concern is just the availability of these fuels. because it sounds very easy, right? Hey, you know, it's all there and you just need to put something different in the tank. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of methanol in the market today. It's actually one of the most commonly traded chemical commodities, but it's all made on coal or natural gas as a feedstock, right? So if we burn that, we're not solving the problem. We're just burning another fossil fuel. Um, So you need to make it either from a sustainable biomass or via this power to X. Where you use uh, electrolysis to split water and you use the hydrogen and you pair it with, with biogenic CO2. And and that, although the technology is well known, it's just not, not happening. I mean, as we speak today, to our knowledge, the global production of what we consider properly green uh, methanol is 30,000 tons and it's made in Canada. That's it. And just for the record, that couldn't even feed one of the big ships, not even one for a year. So we need, just for the ships that we have ordered yet, we need half a million tons and the global production today is 30,000. <laughs> so, but, but hey, that's the problem we need to solve. And that's actually the reason why we have decided to lean in a bit on this is really to say that, hey, we are in the market for this stuff because what we realized was that there was a little bit of a chicken and egg type situation where nobody produced green fuels because there was no market, there were no ships to burn it and nobody built the ships because there was no fuel. So there you are looking at each other. And, and we are, I think we're trying to break that situation now. And, and I, I must say that, um, so far, am I confident? I think you asked me, am I confident that I will get it? Well, you know, I will say I am optimistic because we have actually made an agreement for the first feeder vessel that will come out next year. And we are in dialogue with a lot of very capable partners to deliver. I mean, what they are looking for is a bankable off right? We have that and we are willing to put that to play. There's of course the price challenge. There is a limit to how much financial pain we can endure together with our customers. So that's what we are working on. But I will not say confident, but I am certainly optimistic. But yeah, there is, a, there is a
1: big price challenge. And as you say, these fuels are more expensive and it's not just for shipping. AP Moller, Maersk's pledges, net zero greenhouse gas emissions in 2040, which is 10 years of urine ahead of your initial target. And you've also set a range of 2030 targets offering green products. Given what you've just said there about the the need to find green ammonia or whether it's green ammonia, green hydrogen, there's lots of different fuels out there. Outside of your shipping business, you need to look at this from your supply chain services, which is one of the reasons I mentioned green hydrogen, which is seen as a solution for trucking, for example. But you're also in in air freight. How do you join all these things up with those targets?
0: Listen, um, the targets we have set are quite frankly, at the edge of our ability, and and why did we do that? I, I think honestly, we, we see this as an emergency and we you, know, you need a, an emergency response. And typically an emergency response is at the edge of your ability. So I just want to make it this is by no means easy. But of course, we wouldn't have said it if we didn't think it was feasible. And I think for the fleet, we talked a lot about that. We we do actually see a path, right? we, I, I am actually optimistic. When you go to the land side of things, which is of course very important to our customers, it's both easier because you are on land, so you can actually start electrifying stuff and so on. But it's also much more complex because you have much more optionality between the different modes and the warehouses. And even you have huge regional differences, right? So running an electric truck in Sweden versus running an electric truck in another country like Poland, it's a very different grid mix. So, you know, it, it's just not straightforward. And quite frankly, uh, these markets are also very immature. I mean, it, it's actually hard to get an electric truck, even if you wanted one. And we do. <laughs> so the way we go at that is that we are in learning mode, big time, a lot of the time in collaboration with our customers, because they they are really eager to solve this problem as well. And what we are doing this year is we are piloting a lot, again, together with customers. We've taken the first step, so we have, for example, procured some electric trucks in uh, US and and, and um, we have made some investments in some interesting startups. Um, we have secured the first amounts of sustainable aviation fuel. So we have we are really working hard piloting these things with the objective to learn. And once we have learned enough, then we will scale. Uh, and that's a little bit how we have done it at Ocean, right? We've been learning more for some years. Now we go into scale mode. And I think that's the way forward. And here I think the very important thing is that collaboration is just key we can sit here and read all the reports and talk to all the clever people in the world, right? We need to collaborate very closely with customers, but also with suppliers. We need to engage the full ecosystem here. And again, it's quite immature where we are, but I will say this is that I've been working on many, many different topics in my life. I have never, ever seen anything that creates such excitement and willingness to collaborate as this one. So, you know, I think this is really taking a, a collaboration to the next level and we need to to solve it But it is very complex at length point. But, but again, we need to to solve that as well.
1: You mentioned earlier that there's things out of your control in all of this. Clearly there's the carbon tax markets and there's a global challenge on pricing of these fuels. But when you talk about collaboration, there also needs to be leadership, doesn't there? Political leadership and regulatory leadership. The IMO has been accused of foot dragging quite a few times by all sorts of people. Uh, but it's not, and it's not only the IMO, it's all the regulators and all the, all the jurisdictions. If it was down to you, what sort of leadership would you have and who from? What would they do to make all of this happen faster?
0: I think it's maybe we see this too simplistically. I don't know. But again, at price on CO2, it would just level the playing field. The market is a very effective measure. Right? So that is what we prefer. I think our CEO even suggested it would be $150 per ton of CO2 that would just not entirely level the playing field now, but in the medium term, it would level the playing field. And of course, it would uh, speed things up. And I think if you look at the the IMO 2020 low sulfur regulation, see how effective that was, it was done literally overnight. So I I do actually think that uh, certainly in shipping, we actually have a unique opportunity to do this fast by regulation. But it does, of course, require that the regulators step up. And uh, and of course, I think we, as most, were very disappointed by the progress in November and, and really the fact that the IMO didn't manage to keep the momentum from the COP, very, very disappointing. But, you know, um, that's what it is. Of course, then the second best thing is regional initiatives. And it's, of course, uh, great to see that the EU is stepping up. There are actually many, many countries who are trying to support this on the land side. There are a lot of incentive schemes in different countries, and you can just see it works. So I do think in an ideal world, we need global regulation on this to level the playing field. We think and hope it'll come. But for lack of that, any government should look themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, what can I do? We all should, right? So, um, So we do definitely need some political leadership. I think right now, to be honest, it seems like businesses are a bit ahead of the politicians on this one. I think it'll create some quite nice push on the politicians as well so we should same as every other company just keep pushing
1: some of those politicians have said that net zero isn't the not as an emissions target for shipping and and that we should be the aim really should be absolute zero what's your view
0: on that of course we completely agree it should be absolute zero i, I think we try to rely on what knowledge is out there and what is sort of scientifically sound and realistic. And, and we have decided to lean on this so-called science-based target initiative, who have uh, defined what they mean by net zero. And that is, uh, and may, if we make that very clear, then Project 1, 2 and 3 is to abate real emissions. I mean, make no mistakes. It's not like we are just offsetting that. No, no. I mean, th- we are abating real emissions in our supply chain. Uh, And we are doing it in accordance with the the Science Based target Initiative. And the way uh, uh, that is defined now, they actually allow for a small, very small actually part of what they, I think they call them like unabatable emissions to be offset, right? That is where we are now. Let's see, I mean, this area is moving so fast. Let's see where we are. I mean, we updated our vision now compared to three years ago. We want to be at the edge of this and do the most we can, but for now we stick to the Science Based target Initiative and quite frankly, that's a pretty ambitious one right and actually we even shaved off 10 years so we think for now that's that's enough challenge for one company
1: morton bo christians thank you very much for joining me on this inaugural uh, lodestar big interview podcast
0: thanks for inviting me it was a real pleasure thanks
1: i'd like to thank my editing team the amazing karen ball and tom matthews big thanks also to our sponsors project 44 And gratitude to you all, of course, for taking the time to listen. We'll be back soon.